There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Listener, this week I bring you a mammoth podcast, and mammoths are about the only animal not appearing in it. We have five, count them five, main guests, an all-star supporting cast. We have several startled pussycats, and even an actual moo cow. We are off to the Royal Veterinary College in Camden, and a quick heads up if you're of a queasy disposition, if you've just had spag bowl for lunch, or are mourning the loss of a family feline, uh, there's a little bit in here that you might want to skip past. On the other hand, if dolphin kidneys are your thing, you're in the right place. It's Saturday the 28th of March 2015, I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Hey baby, step out me. See things of the air, land, and sea. Some creep, some saw. Down the road, can't break stone. My heart aches for so this week we're going to be chopping wildlife up in a dissection room I've just discovered. If you're of a squeamish disposition, which I may be, we may discover, then you may need to brace yourself. I'm here at the Rural Veterinary College and we've got a melange of people to talk to here. First up, we have Andrew Crook, MBE. He is the Head of Technical Services. Shortly we'll be talking to Dr. Andy Childs and with us too, Dr. Grace Sim. Andy is uh, a lecturer and we're going to be finding out all, all about his reproduction. That's what it says here. And Dr. Grace Sim, Outreach Development Manager. Hello, you all. Hello. Hello there. Andrew number one, Andrew Crook. Could you describe the room we're in? Yes, we're in the Anatomy Museum, which is a... Uh, open access room within the RVC for students to come and study their anatomy at any time during the day or night that they wish. This podcast is going to be riven with double entendre, isn't it? <laughs> well, I do hope so. <laughs> Good. Um, we've got some living, breathing animals as well to balance things out. We're in a room full of skeletons and bones. And we've been to one or two other institutions in London in the past for the podcast where the purpose is very much about students being able to get their hands on and see how joints work. How does it work here? That's very much the same here. We like to think of it as a very hands-on museum. We have a number of different specimens that we use for teaching anatomy, um, bones and other dry specimens but as you can see around you uh, quite a large number of uh, specimens within museum pots which we use for students to uh, understand the uh, muscles or organs of the animal that they happen to be studying. Should we get an overview of the college and its physical context and its historical 
context also? The college was started in 1791 and it is um, the oldest veterinary college in the English-speaking world. And now we do courses such as veterinary medicine, which is very well known for veterinary nursing, but also courses in bioveterinary sciences and also biological sciences. And with a lifespan like that, one might expect that it's moved around a lot, but uh, has it? In actual fact, um, it was started here in Camden, and we've also got another campus, which is in Potter's Bar. So that's our Hawkshead campus. And up there, there's a lot more space, so there's a lot more of the larger animals. And that's where you'll find the places such as the Equine Referral Hospital and also um, the Queen Mother Animal Hospital. So th- this is like a, a teaching hospital as people learning on the job? Absolutely. In fact, here we've also got the Bowman Sainsbury Animal Hospital, um, just next door to our site in Camden. I'm particularly interested in the area, having just walked behind Kings Cross and come up past the antique shops, which I didn't, I didn't know about, and seen a tiny little church there that looks like it's been there forever and, and seems like it's been transplanted from a village green somewhere. Uh, it's a rather unusual uh, area. What, can, can you characterise the area more generally? Well, it's interesting, although now we see this as our city campus, in fact, in 1791, this, in fact, was the countryside. And so you've got the canal running near here. Um, You've, in fact, got the horse hospital in Camden, Camden stables that people might know. Um, And that's where the horses would have been brought who were uh, taking the canal boats up and down. So you're absolutely right. This is an area that's changed in nature a lot recently. And, in fact, it's a very um, significant area because with a lot of development happening at King's Cross, there's going to be the new NC1 um, Uh, postcode, the knowledge quarter. It's a really vibrant, uh, happening place to be. And it occurs to me then that the customers here have been bringing their animals across the the lifespan of the institution for different reasons then. Uh, Back in the 1700s, it would have been because they're important for their work. Is that the case now? What sort of uh, customers do you have? There is a a huge range of customers. And I think obviously here at the Beaumont Sainsbury Animal Hospital, it'd be mostly pets. But you're absolutely right. Previously, it would have been animals um, that were brought for work. For example, sport horses, race horses, things like that. So you've got, uh, back then, you're you're looking at the wealthier customer. So... Um, I think that's a yes. (laughs) Well, in fact, one of the main reasons that uh, the veterinary college was started is to do with a racehorse called Eclipse. And so this horse was um, an amazing racehorse. It won many races. And in fact, people wanted to investigate how come this horse is so good. And so, in fact, when they um, did a post-mortem, they found out that, in fact, it had an extremely large heart. And that was the secret of its success. But that really inspired a lot of scientific research into why certain animals have got certain traits. Well, I couldn't want for a better link into what surrounds us. Andrew Crick, you're going to give us a whistle-stop tour of what's on display here, I think. Absolutely, yes. Uh, The first thing we can probably look at is the wonderful skeleton we have of Fox Hunter here. Uh, Fox Hunter is very, very famous, uh, partly because he was one of the only gold medal, well, the only gold medal winner of the London Olympics in 1952, um, and famously ridden by uh, Colonel Harry Flewellyn. So uh, he has a lot of history in his background. Did we mention at any point that he's a horse? (laughs) (laughs) No, I totally forgot to mention the fact that he is a horse. Um, And uh, interestingly, he's he's had an interesting history since he uh, passed away as well, because uh, a few years back, the people from the Harry Potter studios decided that they wanted to investigate how to put together um, Buckbeak the Hippogriff. So they contacted me, and we looked at how it might work. Uh, So really, Fox Hunter the horse uh, is right in front of us, being also the model for the Hippogriff in the Harry Potter movies. Well, let's process through, shall we? Yeah, okay. 
so we've got uh, a number of specimens right in front of us now that are preserved specimens with soft tissues rather than the bony skeleton that we saw with fox hunter a moment ago here you can see various uh, muscles and tendons associated with the knee joint Um, these have all been preserved in a solution that's known as edinburgh solution which is a a hypersaturated sodium acetate solution Um, and it preserves the color you can't see much of the color here but on some of these you can see the color is preserved so students can see these soft tissues and study them anytime they like rather than um, Um, having to come and look at specimens that are uh, more handleable but you need to wear gloves and protective equipment for. So a a student arriving here and being able to uh, start uh, using these facilities, what sort of background will they have? When they arrive here, obviously our course is split up into into two distinct parts and that splits nicely into our preclinical studies and our clinical studies. So our students will spend the first two years of their time at the RVC here learning uh, biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, um, all those things that are important precursors to getting their hands on live animals. So uh, that's how the the, uh, breakup of the course goes. Once they've completed those first first two years, they'll then go out to Hawkshead and do their paraclinical and clinical studies. And is becoming a vet just a single course? I, I imagine that there must be specialisms and subdivisions within it, right? Absolutely, yes. The, the, the very basic course is the BVET Med course that we teach, but after that the students are able to go off and study things like wild animal health, wild animal biology, uh, various other different uh, MSc and uh, other degree courses uh, that are specialised in different areas. And I was going to ask a question, and I realise this leads potentially, Andy, into your area of specialism. The way I was going to phrase it is, what's the sexy stuff within all of this? But maybe, I mean, uh, what, what would be regarded as the, the plum jobs within the veterinary sphere? Oh, right. Well, I'm actually a basic scientist, so I'm teaching the, the preclinical end, very much the sort of genetics and reproduction side of it. Uh, I imagine if you asked you know, any particular person who's in any particular specialism, they'd probably say theirs was the best. And I think that's probably the same <laughs> with any field of biology uh, You know, at our end, that very much everybody thinks thinks their field's the interesting one and the cell or the organ or the tissue they study is far and away more interesting than, uh, than any others. I mean, I'm very lucky. I happen to study the ovary and the testis and, and a little bit of the uterus. And, you know, to be honest, I think they're far more interesting than the liver and the kidney. But I, I certainly imagine some of my colleagues would have something different to say about that. So in terms of the exhibits here, what catches your eye? Oh, I, there's an absolutely fantastic... Having said that, there's a fantastic dolphin kidney on the other side of the, uh, of the wall. Let's go and look at a dolphin kidney. <laughs> um, which I think Andrew could probably tell you rather, rather more about than I can. <laughs> uh, but that, unfortunately, even I should, though... I, I should explain my laughter. There was an alarmed, <laughs> there was an alarmed gesture there. Uh, even, even though I've been here a vast amount of time, this actually predates me, so I really don't know much more about it. But just to describe it, unlike a normal kidney that is very, very smooth on its outer surface, this is a kidney that has vast numbers of very small lobules. Um, and therefore, it's got more in common, perhaps, with the, with the cow kidney, which has got larger, bigger lobules on it, uh, than it does, perhaps, with the horse. Or a, or a dog kidney. So we're looking at a thing here that looks like a large hand grenade with that kind of pi- pineapple <laughs> yeah. shell effect on it. But it's also, is, is that a network of uh, veins? Yeah, and so my understanding is each one of these lobules works almost as an independent kidney. And because these dolphins are obviously going to be living in salt water, they've got to you know, deal with a great deal of salty material around them. So you know, the kidney's all about processing salt and getting water out and water retention. And obviously that's a lot harder for an animal that's in a, a saline environment than perhaps for us. And so it's got to have that kind of larger processing area than, say, these sort of smoother, regular kidneys that people might have seen in the butchers or in the supermarket. 
would you say you think like an engineer? Uh, no, probably not. Actually, I, I tend to people I think tend to think that scientists are very uh, uncreative, but I think actually it's kind of the other way around. I always think of as being quite creative and in terms of sort of tackling problems, not necessarily in a mathematical way. And kind of one of the reasons I went into biology is that I kind of rather detested maths and, you know, biology was the science where you could write essays. So if you were good at that, you did well in biology. Don't let him, my students hear that. They'll, they'll play. <laughs> um, but there is a certain degree of problem solving. You know, you have a degree of a number of questions that you're interested in in your field and you tackle those questions and we, we sort of spend our day-to-day research lives and, and, and our teaching as well to some extent in trying to highlight those questions to the students and also tackle them ourselves, you know, come up with uh, strategies and experiments to be able to answer those questions. Grace, you're in charge of outreach and I suspect you wear other hats also but outreach being the big one, what's the, the hook for people who might be considering or maybe have never considered I don't know this is a as a path what does it offer so many people wanted to be vets when they were very young and I think one of the things we really want to do is to encourage people to know how to actually get to be a vet if that's something that they're still interested in um, to dispel some of the myths about the barriers to being a vet um, but also to interest people in some of the other courses like bioveterinary sciences um, and veterinary nursing so People um, come here to see um, the real specimens, um, to meet the live animals. But also, we go out to loads of different schools, we go to festivals. Um, and in fact, my colleague here, um, Issy Adiola, um, goes to a lot of the festivals. So, Issy, recently you went to one in Middlesbrough. Yes, let's have the festival pitch. <laughs> That's very correct. I went to um, Imagineer Festival in Middlesbrough. So we had a stall, um, and it was a collaborative effort with the Society of Biology. So we had a stall which is all about circadian rhythms and different animals, nocturnal and diurnal. So I was dressed in a tiger onesie, and my colleagues were <laughs> dressed in, in various animal onesies, sort of getting weird looks from the public, but also getting people drawn to our stall and seeing what we were all about. So This was at a, a music festival? No, this was a science festival. Oh, science festival. Yeah, it happened oh, at school. I thought you were like at Glastonbury and <laughs> lots of people taking alternative medication and seeing somebody dressed as a lion. <laughs> no, not quite. This was real, real time. We do actually go to music festivals as well, though. So last year we went to the Green Man Festival, um, again together with the Society of Biology. And uh, we're in a, a bus called the Love Zoo. That's a true story. One of the things I want to pick up on is you asked about people's backgrounds. We're very interested in encouraging uh, people people who might have come from a disadvantaged background um, to study veterinary medicine. So, for example, we've got a gateway course that's a foundation course. And if people have got lower grades, but if they've come from disadvantaged circumstances, you can do a year like a foundation course in advance of the uh, veterinary degree. We have been joined by... Uh, this is going to be a team effort on uh, today's show. Uh, I, I want us to get to the next exhibit and then we will introduce a newcomer. Andrew, could you take us to your next choice from the collection here yes okay well what i'll show you actually is some of the specimens that we have in this cabinet here and hopefully what you can see is that they are not in perspex cases like some of the other specimens we have this is a new technique that we're pioneering not pioneering but developing here at the rvc uh, which is plastination now you may have heard of plastination before relating to uh, gunter von hagen's and his body worlds exhibitions but we've very fortunately been able to uh, create a plastination lab ourselves and these are some of the very first specimens that we've brought through our new unit uh, which means that students can actually handle these specimens without having to wear gloves and 
have these specimens washed off or anything like that. It's uh, it's a wonderful development, and uh, we're we're producing as many specimens as we can. Uh, does that mean, in terms of the items that you select for display, unlike other organisations, you're looking for things that are very typical as opposed to the atypical? Absolutely, yes. What we're looking at here is anatomy and normal anatomy, so that when we get our students to move on to the clinical side of things and they're looking at pathological, then they can see the difference. So very much focusing on the, uh, on the normal. And I, I think that kind of builds into the whole sort of ethos of the early stages of the veterinary course in that we're very interested in sort of taking the students from the molecular level, what's going on at the subcellular level, through the structures of cells, through to histology, you know, the arrangements of these cells and tissues, up to the level of an organ and how that's organised, and then right up to the level of a whole organism. But it's really important for the students when they, when they move up to the other campus at Hawkshead that they, they understand each of these systems working together, right from the large animal right down to the sort of smallest cellular level. Because that's really the way that the science is going. You know, we're, we're increasingly going back to large organism science and understanding how organisms work as a, as a whole and how the organ systems talk to each other, but also going completely the other way and becoming ever more reductionist. So we're right down on the molecular level, sort of really asking what's happening, you know, within a cell nucleus or within a subcompartment of a cell. What about the question of life? You know, we kind of have our, our standards for life, so it's got to be able to reproduce, it's got to be able to uh, generate energy, it's got to be able to gen- sort of metabolise, and it's got to have some vague understanding of what's going around in its environment so it's got to be able to respond to external stimuli so i mean that was kind of the the sort of classical idea of of life that i learned at school and it's probably the one that i'd still stick with and so things like viruses for example we probably wouldn't classically imagine to be alive in the in terms of those kind of three conditions because whilst they have genetic material they don't really respond to their environment as such and uh, and they don't metabolize you know they hijack another cell's uh, machinery in order to be able to reproduce now, if my list of names here is right, this is Lucy Stratton. Yeah, yeah I've got it right. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Uh, you're studying under Andy, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm actually working in Andy's uh, lab doing a research project as part of the integrated uh, BSc in comparative pathology. Um, what, is... what does that mean in uh, day-to-day terms? Uh, so I'm a glutton for punishment, so I decided that in the middle of my five-year vet med degree that I would uh, do a integrated... BSc, so I'm doing another degree for a year in the middle of my veterinary medicine degree. Wow. <laughs> what would possess you? Um, well, I, I don't really know. Glutton for punishment. <laughs> What's your day-to-day all about then? What do you find yourself doing? So in the lab, I sort of do a lot of histology, so looking at slides and uh, doing staining and then taking pictures of them and sort of looking at sort of areas and um, just basic lab work really Um, and then outside of the lab I've been doing some modules on the BSc course Uh, that's just finished now so I'm all Andy's full time. Yeah so one of the things that Lucy's working on is is something called caloric restriction that your listeners might have heard of uh, which is this idea that if you reduce your calorie intake over your lifespan you can actually extend your lifespan. Uh, And generally, that seems to come at the cost of reproducing. So if you're taking in energy, you can either invest it in keeping your body going or you can invest it in reproduction. Uh, And what a lot of animals seem to do is in sort of lean times, essentially, when they, they don't have large energy reserves or food is scarce, they kind of damp down their reproduction, essentially, to keep them going through sort of seasons. Um, and so one of the things that Lucy's looking at at the moment is, uh, is what happens to sort of testis development and sperm production in animals which have been calorie restricted. At the moment, we're looking to see if there's just a difference between the size of the uh, tubules within the testis. Um, not sure if there's going to be a difference. I mean, I hope there is. Um, 
uh, next week, I guess I will be finding that out. Um, and then after that, I think we're going to look at sort of rates of um, division and how many different tubules have got division going on and whether there's a difference between the normal fed mice and the calorie-restricted mice. Right, so it's, so it's looking at what the effect of that is. Yeah. Rather than, uh, in the back of my mind, I had the racehorse that we were talking about earlier on, the, the issue being, why is this racehorse going so fast? Ah, because it's got this particular physiological advantage. No, so we're sort of, they've been calorie-restricted, and then we're actually just looking to see if that's had an effect on the uh, male testis and their spermatogenesis. Um, so we don't know if there's going to be a difference. When does an animal decide it's going to invest you know, its energy in, in maintaining the body at the expense of reproduction, or even just in terms of, uh, of perhaps human populations, you know, undernutrition or overnutrition, and what's going to be the impact on, on their reproductive function? And this is a really kind of critical issue now you know, we, with the obesity epidemic and everything. We've understood for a long time that if you're obese, that has a negative effect on, on your reproductive capacity. You know, it, it, it impairs your sperm production or it impairs your egg production if you're a female but what we're starting to understand now is that that's probably going to have knock-on effects on subsequent generations as well and so with an increasing proportion of the population being obese it's really important for us to understand you know what are the lifetime impacts of of manipulating nutrition and manipulating sort of calorie intake and fat intake in terms of your capacity to reproduce but also your, perhaps your daughter or your son's capacity to reproduce, and even their grandchildren's. You know, we've known for a long time now that uh, you know, if you're obese during pregnancy, that can tend to lead to either having a very low birth weight of the offspring or a very high birth weight of the offspring. And when those children are born, they tend to have sort of catch-up growth and overshoot. And that tends to predispose them to having health disorders later in life. So the children tend to be prone to getting cardiovascular disease or diabetes perhaps in their 30s or 40s if their mother or was was obese during pregnancy and whilst we've understood those things you know fairly well for the past two or three years we don't really have an understanding of what the impact is on on the offspring's reproductive capacity and so we know things like smoking have a very negative impact on offspring so if you smoke during pregnancy your sons have reduced sperm counts and we've got some evidence that maybe there's there's a link with early menopause so women who smoke during pregnancy have daughters who have a menopause earlier and we're trying to get you know a handle on what these environmental impacts are in terms of reproductive capacity now this was something you were talking about the other day there was an event on here roughly corresponding with mother's day and uh, i was a little bit disturbed by the link mother's day and reproduction i mean it's undeniably there but you just don't want to be thinking about that link but it's one of many events that you do here. Yeah, that's right. We run public events because, in fact, this museum isn't open to the public apart from on public event days. So we've got family fun days um, where people can bring in their children if they're interested in being a vet or studying uh, biological sciences. I thought you were going to say bring the children, put them on display, <laughs> move so, the kidney. All sorts of stuff that um, the children can enjoy doing, trying out veterinary skills like bandaging cuddly toys. And um, Believe it or not, vets actually um, practice their bandaging skills on toys actually in university so it's one of the few universities that has got um, toys in it for proper learning reasons can I just get confirmation on this um yep we've all done it and it's one of my favorite parts (laughs) 
It's true. So, and we've also got all sorts of um, real things that they can see. For example, the GPS collars that are put on uh, lions and cheetahs, um, studying um, natural animal behaviour in Botswana. We've got some of those here as well that people can have a look at for themselves. Um, so we do those in the Easter holidays, summer holidays. But then, of course, for adults, then we do evening events called Night at the Vet College. We've got a student bar, which has a very popular pub quiz to finish. And those events are all free. Um, we usually just put them on Eventbrite so people can see uh, what's happening. I don't know who wants to take this. this. This might be one for you, Grace, I'm not sure. But we know, of course, that there's a bit of a brain drain going on with particularly doctors, less so with nurses. What's the situation with vets? Um, the main issue that um, we're interested in in veterinary sciences, in fact, there are a lot more um, female veterinary students than male veterinary students. And so we're really interested in um, uh, redressing that balance slightly. So um, it's, it's interesting to think about why there might be more female veterinary students than male. But it's also important to attract male veterinary students to the profession but what about out the other end uh, are there more positions than vets or the other way around we have a very regulated system the uh, the royal college of veterinary surgeons uh, makes sure that the number of veterinary students coming into the profession uh cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details is roughly similar to the number of students or students professionals leaving the profession at the other end so we have a, a wonderful situation whereby most veterinary students that leave us should go into a job fairly easily uh, we're lucky here at the RBC because we're affiliated with every veterinary association throughout the throughout the world so a degree here means you've got the opportunity to work anywhere in the world so from that point of view our students are particularly lucky um, this does of course have a knock-on effect and it means that places at veterinary schools are very very highly sought after and generally speaking we're looking at about uh, 10 applicants for every one place uh, at the RVC so we don't have a brain drain as far as veterinary students are concerned we have a very very uh, competitive and uh, and exciting uh, opportunity for people but it is very competitive well I've, I've been promised uh, the opportunity to see people chopping up pussycats uh, I don't know whether I want to take you up on this but I suppose I've got to let's, let's do it shall we yes it's right. just through here our sponsor as ever we get the generous support of audible.com as a listener to this podcast you can claim a free 
audio book if you sign up for their uh, monthly book you can get a book a couple of books and you can stick them in your ears just like you're doing with this podcast right now we have come to a, a group of veterinary specialists for recommendations we're not sure because we haven't read it about vets in love by uh, kathy woodward i think but what is the recommendation grace that you picked out here uh, Dog Days and Catnaps by Mark E. Burgess. It looks very interesting and looks very relevant to the stuff we study here. Right, there we go. So that's one uh, possibility. But of course, it might be that London history rocks your boat as well. And there's uh, certainly titles covering that. Audible.com forward slash Londonist to get your free title. And we're standing outside B11, the dissection room where it's all about to go wrong for me. <laughs> well, I hope not. Yes, what we're going to do is we're going to go in and have a look at some students who are in the middle of a dissection prize competition. Uh, I'm just going to describe the horror that is <laughs> visible from here. There are plastic sacks uh, and blankets covering mounds of what looks like roadkill. <laughs> Uh, what we have here is a number of uh, foxes and cats that have been donated to us by a veterinary, uh, veterinary hospital and they've all been embalmed and they are in the process of being dissected so the students can gain some extra knowledge. This is outside of their normal uh, dissection classes so this is all voluntary work that they're doing uh, and highly commendable. Are we able to get close in? Absolutely, please go in. So this place has an air of the the factory about it. Uh, everything's made out of metal and can be drained. It looks a little bit like those post-mortem rooms you see on TV also. We're heading towards one of the tables here um, where we can see... Well, it's very difficult to identify this as uh, an animal. This looks more like the butcher's gander at Morrison's. Yes, what you can see is one of our first-year students, Tom, here, who's um, in the middle of actually coming towards the end of his dissection. And perhaps you, if I just point you in the direction of the lower half here, you can see the two kidneys. You can see a, a wonderful dissection of the ureter coming down towards the bladder, obviously the tail. Uh, Tom has decided that he wants to display this with the legs having been removed, so you can see everything nice and clearly there. We can see Pussy's uh, head on the top there looking rather surprised by the whole affair yes. and the tail coming out of the bottom here. And then in the middle, essentially, a cone-shaped <coughs> the rib cage, I presume. Yes, it is. Uh, and very little else. So what's been your mission here? What have you been aiming to achieve by cutting the cat up in this way? Um, my, well, the main objective was to, was to show the urinary tract in situ of the body. So what I decided to do was I removed all the skin and the legs and the head just to show it more clearly. That was there, just so you could identify that. Uh, Tom has just moved the head to one side. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, uh, I then located the kidneys, and then from there I'm progressively working backwards, just highlighting, like Andrew said, the ureter and the bladder, removing the fat that surrounds them. And, and what's the aim here? Is this uh, more or less to prove that you can do it and that you know where everything is, or is this for the benefit of others? I think it's a bit of both, really. Yeah. Just to get familiar Hopefully. with it. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's really good practice for myself but, um. as I mentioned a little bit earlier uh, we have our new plastination suite so Tom here has uh, done a wonderful dissection which is obviously going to benefit his own knowledge etc but equally we're going to take that specimen and we're going to plastinate it so that students for the years to come will be able to use uh, Tom's brilliance here to learn from uh, you've been very warm about his dissection there. How has he achieved such high praise? Because he's gone through our system and I know he's a particularly good student, I can see there for many, many years of having looked at dissections, I can see that everything's nice and clear. So uh, it, it looks like a good, a good job. Thank you, Tom. Shall we move to another bench? Uh, we're moving past a fox. 
we have another cat recumbent looking like it's taking in the sun <laughs> yes this is another specimen daniel what what's the topic on this particular dissection it's how much fat you can remove from one specimen in an afternoon um we're supposed to be showing the the pancreas and the uh, adrenal glands but um this was quite a porky kitty and uh, unfortunately the the fat tends to collect around the kidneys quite nicely and and block your view of the adrenal glands so uh we were hoping to keep quite a lot of it in situ so you could see the connection between the ducts and the veins and the, uh, and the pancreas and the rest of the, uh, the system, the duodenum and the stomach. But uh, we've had to remove a lot more just simply because it's so full of fat. It's made it really difficult. Is my imagination leaping ahead if I imagine that a vet might have a hard time in real life uh, fixing a fat kitty? Uh, any fat animal is going to be really difficult if you're going to have to operate on it because... You, it just obscures everything in terms of touch as well as sight. It's um, and fat loves to collect around organs as well, and obviously that's the you know where you might want to uh, end up doing an operation. So if you're a pet owner, worth bearing in mind by the sounds of it. It's really interesting because obviously these kind of companion animals like dogs and cats are sharing the environment that humans are sharing. You know, they're suffering from the same kind of problems of, as overfeeding and the same kind of knock-on uh, negative impacts on, on health. And so being in a veterinary college like this affords us a really unique opportunity to be able to perform this kind of research because it allows us to do what we call comparative studies. So we can look at things like dogs and cats that are suffering... Uh, or, or you know, having problems with obesity and similar things and try and understand the health impacts on those. And that's going to inform our understanding of what's happening with humans. Um, Essie, I'd love to... Can I come around to you as a part-time professional big cat? Is this something that you get involved with as well? Are you hands-on on this side of things? I was hands-on when I studied here at the RVC. I did a master's degree in wild animal biology. So basically dissection of specimens sort of came with the territory, and I was doing that every week. We had rotations where specimen would be brought in, and we'd be doing pretty much what these students are doing here. And they were always at London Zoo or Whipsnade Zoo, so we always got all sorts of interesting things, things like... Anything from a pigeon to a wallaby, really. Some of my students even had to work on a full-grown bison that had to be euthanized up at Whipsnade, and they actually had to sort of dissect it and see how it was put together internally as well. That sounds like the area where there'd be the greatest variance, although that could be a silly thing to say, but the wild animals seem most obviously to differ country to country. Oh, most definitely, and especially and species to species as well. So if you're working on something like, say, a crow, which I did, um, it's going to be sort of different internally to something like a mammal, whether it's a rabbit or a pig, which I also worked on as well. And then obviously with birds, you have things like a crop, which is a sort of a storage sack under their neck where they store excess food. So you have to look at what's inside there as well. And then you have the stomach contents, intestinal contents, and that can vary within species to species, or even with, if it, the bird's within the same family, it can vary amongst members of that same family. I know that the aim is to finish with animals that are still alive, uh, really just to, to calm myself back down again from the spectacle here. Where are we heading next? We can head back um, to another museum. We've in fact got a museum just above this. Um, so let's go and have a look at some of the specimens up there. Well, now, hang on, that doesn't sound like living animals. Um, in fact... It sounds like dead living animals. <laughs> it's, it's true, but it's all, all part of... Um, understanding how animals fit together when they're in good working order so that if they come in and there's something wrong with them people know how to put them back together how to care for them and to look after 
pets, to look after commercial animals, sport animals, whatever uh, people bring in, the aim is that vets will understand how to help cure it. Just to reassure myself and possibly the listener, have you actually got any real-life living animals on the side? Um, we have. In fact, we can That's go... That's a huge relief. <laughs> Should we go and see those now? Yeah. <laughs> Andrew is heading through some large black doors at the end of the uh, facility here. It's quite a massive building here, isn't it? What's the, what's the acreage? Do you happen to know uh, what, what sort of size this place I don't is? at all. This bit is the Hobday building, which was built in the 1930s. Um... And I don't actually know how big it is, but I guess it's, it's sort of the size of sort of a large city block, isn't how, it? How many students have you got? Uh, I think we've got between about 1,000 and 1,500 undergraduates, is that, is that right? Over two undergraduate courses plus the intercalated courses. That's actually relatively small, so we're a small specialist uh, college at the University of London, so I mean I guess most of the kind of classical universities you'd think of, sort of uh, the, the kind of multi-faculty ones like UCL or something, are going to be upwards of 15,000, 20,000 students, um, so we're obviously quite a bit smaller than that, and we really just only kind of focus on the veterinary medicine and the biology side of things. So it's a village atmosphere? Uh, it is, very. it's really very collegiate actually, which is great, both from the research point of view, it gives our students sort of a really great opportunity to be able to access the staff who are, who are engaged in research so the teaching here is very research led um, the lecturers are all engaged in in their particular specialisms and it also gives them you know a great deal of sort of time access uh, to the staff and to the expertise with people like Andrew on the dissection and specimens well Andrew is getting himself reacquainted with a living specimen here there's the smell of the farmyard and I can see cows Yes, here we have our two anatomy cows. These are our demonstration animals. So when we're teaching anatomy, um, obviously we focus an awful lot on dissection, but dissection without being able to relate it to the live animal is actually a bit pointless. So what we have is our, our two cows. We've got two horses next door and a couple of greyhounds as well. And these are more, than, more like pets than anything else. We bring them over for what we call ISF practicals, which is integrated structure and function um, and they get stroked by students for about half an hour a time hello I quite like the sound of this course I'm getting I'm getting leaned on quite seriously here by a cow Uh, this is uh, (laughs) this is Primrose and Melody and they they're absolutely adorable aren't you yes and you can see she she wants to give me a big kiss um, it looked to me very. This is Primrose. Uh, it's one. Of, I can't tell the difference. Oh right. <laughs> but one's Primrose and one's Melody. Uh, whichever cow this was was having a very good look at what we were up to there. Are, they, are these uh, smart creatures? Uh, yes, I think they, they certainly get to know you. That's much. I, that much I can tell you. Um, and they enjoy a good scratch on the broom on the side there. You can see that. But no, they, they certainly get to know you. And they they're walked over into our classes and they sit there and they just lick me while the students are actually understanding what's going on underneath the skin if you like in the bay next door we can see uh, horses while grace is getting release form signed for the cows uh, <laughs> we can see, uh, see pen big enough. <laughs> we're gonna get a hoof print this is uh, bobtail and obviously she knows her name because she's just come to say hello uh, we've only had her for about three months something like that um, our previous pony um, wasn't feeling very good was getting depressed here so what we've done is we've swapped them over with uh, another pony that's come from a, a riding stables background so she's very very familiar with young people that want to uh, uh, interact with her so she's ideal for us and she's uh, she's been doing brilliantly since uh, since she arrived 
Well, she's looking... Ha- I, I suppose it's my burden to ask what happened to the previous pony. Uh, the previous ponies are waiting rehoming at the moment. Okay, that's a relief. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I had other visions. But <laughs> absolutely fine. <laughs> We're going to head inside. There's an area of the college that's uh, won awards, in fact, for uh, nothing to do with veterinary stuff, but to do with its architecture. Uh, well, I don't think this is particularly architecturally uh, inspiring, uh, <laughs> this particular corridor, but we're heading now into Andy's domain. The others have fallen away, which could mean I'm about to be the subject of experimentation. So we're now in, uh, in one of our cell culture labs. Um, so I guess on this tour we've looked at a lot of uh, kind of organism-level uh, specimens. So you've seen the dissections of the animals. You've seen the organs so, uh, and the skeletons, so a lot of the specimens that have been in the museum. But as I mentioned earlier, we go right down to the cellular level here with the research. And, and the Royal Veterinary College is very conscious of its, uh, you know, its kind of responsibility in terms of understanding animal welfare and things like that. So we have a very big ethos here for what we call the three R's, reduction, replacement and refinement, which are really key things in terms of the use of animals in research. So where we have the opportunity to, to not use animals... Um, we very much push to do so. And this is one of the kind of facilities where we just use cells, okay? And we can actually get right down to the cellular level and ask some questions in terms of the basic biology uh, about how these things, how cells actually work and, and, uh, and the control processes in them. I'll do a quick description for you, listener. On the left-hand side, coming into this rather corridor-like room, you've got two things that uh, the, the first couple of feet of them, uh, they just look like a, an ordinary workstation, a desk with a chair. But then... Do you know what they remind me of? Incubators for chicks. And then at the far end of the room, we've got some big old refrigerator type stuff. On the right-hand side, what looks like a giant photocopier, but almost certainly isn't. And then there's something that looks actually scientific to the lay eye, which is a couple of those microscopes with the binocular vision and the handle to wind the plate up and down. That's right. So these things that you referenced as being sort of chick incubators, these doors actually come up, so you'd have an operator sits in the front of these, and these really are to keep uh, our specimens sterile and to kind of protect them from uh, contamination in the operators. These things over here, which you described as being fridges, are actually the opposite. They're incubators. Obviously, as, uh, as humans, our kind of core body temperature is about 37 degrees. So if we're going to grow cells in vats or in flasks... Uh, they like to be a little bit warmer than room temperature, so these things here are designed to, to keep the cells at a, a temperature at which they're comfortable at. Uh, the thing that looks like a photocopier is actually a centrifuge, um, so for collecting populations of cells, this brings them all down to the bottom of the tube and allows them to move us, uh, allows us to move them between flasks. And you're right, we've got a binocular uh, microscope here as well. So one, one out of four. Yeah, yeah, not bad, not bad. <laughs> so what we're looking at, uh, we've got a flask of cells here, uh, so you feel free to, to have a look if you want. Uh, okay, let's have a look. We're uh, looking through the binoculars. And... So what these are is... Uh... Oh, this is... T- hang on, this is tough. This is like playing uh, saxophone reed. You've really got to get your... There's a technique to it. Ah, okay. What I'm seeing is a, a seemingly transparent crystalline structure there. It's a little bit like your grandma's lace doilies over about 60% of the circular area viewable. Yeah, that's right. So you can hopefully see something that looks a bit sort of ca- like crazy paving or a honeycomb structure. And each one of those panels is actually an individual cell. Uh, and so what you're looking at down the, the microscope here is actually a population of, uh, of what we call spermatogonial stem cells. So these are cells from the testis, and they're responsible for maintaining sperm production through life. 
So these cells uh, divide in humans probably every month or so. Uh, the average human testis has maybe got about 30,000 of them. Uh, and this allows the, the testis to continue producing sperm all the way through life. That's a bit different from females. Females are born with all of the eggs they'll ever have and don't produce any more after birth, we think. Um, Which has always struck me as awfully strange. That means that you, your mother-in-law already has half of your child in her at yeah, some point. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. And, that, and it comes back to what we were talking earlier about the sort of environmental insults potentially is that, uh, you know, if you're a mother who is carry, pregnant and carrying a child, that the eggs are already forming within that child within the womb. And so any kind of environmental disruption that the fetus is exposed to, those oocytes, those eggs within that developing fetus are also exposed to it. And so that has already a knock-on effect potentially uh, into the next generation. And we're really only starting to be able to get a handle on the mechanisms, uh, you know, the effects that those kind of insults can have. Um, we're looking in, in this particular case with these spermatogonial stem cells, we're particularly interested in trying to understand just basically how is sperm produced. And I think you mentioned earlier, you asked about, you know, are we looking at uh, normal development or the pathology and the pathophysiology when things go wrong? And from a research point of view, we can use both. So it's fundamentally important for us to understand how things work normally. Um, and if we understand how things work normally, we can start to understand what happens when things go wrong. And from a kind of reproduction point of view here, you know, we're trying to understand what are the genes that control sperm production? How then can they perhaps contribute to male infertility? But we can also flip that round and we can ask, well, if we understand how the process normally works, can we interfere with it in terms of developing new contraceptives and things like that? Do you have children? Oh, I don't, no, no. Does this colour the way you look at the possibility of children? Uh, not particularly, no, no. I think I, I, as a biologist, I'm just fascinated by, um, by life, I think, and I'm kind of fascinated by the process of going from, uh, you know, a sperm and an egg fusing to create this sort of single cell, and then this thing managing to sort of develop into 3.3 trillion cells, each of which is highly specialised, uh, and hopefully I'll never kind of get over... Uh, the kind of geekery of that, um, which is what kind of keeps me going on a, on a day-to-day basis in terms of the job. Well, that, that was very much where my question came from earlier, and I, I sort of felt like my question wasn't well enough constructed to hit the mark, but is there something there that is just an inexplicable moment of just kind of magic? Yeah, and I guess it comes down to that thing, you know, you speak to a lot of astrophysicists, and uh, I mean, I don't personally, but I imagine people do, um, and they always say, you know, it'll be really disappointing if we, if we understood everything, partly because that means we'd all be out of a job, but also I think the knowledge that there's still stuff to be discovered and there's still boundaries to push is what keeps us most uh, keeps most of us researchers kind of going on a day-to-day basis um you know the, the fundamental processes of, of the development of life are, for me really fascinating and, and reproduction and the you know, kind of development of the testis the development of the ovary and how this whole thing gets kicked off is is really kind of what drives me on a day-to-day basis so you still see yourself as being on a knowledge frontier yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, if you're, if you're just doing kind of incremental stuff um, and painting by numbers, you know, I'm not sure there's, uh, there's much point in it. And, you know, I, I think it was, um, was it Rutherford who said there's two, two types of science? There's physics and stamp collecting. Well, I guess where, where biology fits into that, I'm not entirely sure. But hopefully we're not doing too much stamp collecting. And that actually what we're doing has got uh, some resonance in terms of understanding animal or human health. 
Andy, you're going to return us to the main body of the building now. Yeah, that's right. So the, the main building of the Veterinary College, the Hobday building, is kind of a figure of eight structure um, with two courtyards in it, one of which is kind of still open and the other of which has been converted into a sort of social learning space and cafe. So it has now had a, a roof put over the top. And it's really kind of a, a great space for the students both to learn in, to interact, for the, the staff to be able to meet the students and for us to run tutorials. And there's a nice little sort of study space sort of suspended in the, uh, in the ceiling here. Well, this is impressive. The pod in question reminds me of a World War I German U-boat that's got stuck on a number of posts above the cafe, rather perilously, possibly. That's not an intro for you. You don't want that kind of intro, do you? <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Great. Grace is looking at me with horror. This is not how she wanted the pod represented. <laughs> um, in fact, inside it's got um, really nice sofas. It's got space that uh, people can do things like the problem-based learning. There's a lot of emphasis on social learning in the teaching um, because obviously working as a vet or even um, working as a scientist in uh, bioveterinary sciences biological sciences involves so much collaboration but in fact if you've been studying at school to be a vet you might have had to be very single-minded and so it's really good uh, once people are here to actually have the time to really focus on um, group learning so the space is really well set up for it and it's easy on the eye as well and it's where we're going to leave today's podcast perhaps we might finish with a word on where people can find out more if uh, this has tickled their fancy that's true so we're just setting up for our postgraduate evening tonight and in fact we run um, a number of different evenings I spoke about the public evenings night at the vet college but in fact there are also taster sessions we've got an open day at Hawkshead um, on May the 9th so if people want to have a look then on our website it's uh, www.rvc.ac.uk and if you search visit us you'll find out all the different ways you can come and see um, either visiting the site for yourself or also we can come and visit schools and um, uh, community centres. Well, from the Royal Veterinary College, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Andrew Crook, Andy Childs, Lucy Stratton, Issy Adiola and Grace Sim. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.